0: Welcome to the Inspiring Social Entrepreneurs Podcast. My name is Fergal Byrne. Every week, I talk to inspiring social entrepreneurs and changemakers dedicated to building a better world. Here, they tell their stories, the highs and the lows, and share what they have learned to help other social entrepreneurs and
1: changemakers on their journeys. Let me say this about organizations of any size, including those that have limited resources. It cost us three-quarters of a million, but the proof was so powerful that it has since drawn in 30 to 50 times that amount of resources subsequently. So it was an enormous, it had an enormous return on investment um, for the organization, not, not the least of which was proving for ourselves that, uh, that, the, that the model was working. The success of any organization, be it for-profit or non-profit, does not evolve, does not come out of you know pure strategy. You don't create the winning strategy on the whiteboard. You create the winning strategy by coming up with ideas that you think have potential and getting them in front of the customer as fast as possible.
0: I'm very pleased today to introduce Chuck Slaughter. Chuck is founder and CEO of Living Goods, a social enterprise building a sustainable distribution platform for products designed to fight poverty and disease in the developing world. Living Goods operates networks of independent entrepreneurs currently in Uganda, Kenya, Zambia and Myanmar, who make a living by selling medicines and other products to poor people that can help improve their health, wealth and productivity. It uses a successful direct selling model like Avon products. The company aims to reach 50 million people in the next 10 years with its pioneering model and it's focusing considerable attention on sharing its model with other organisations around the world. Well, thank you very much, Chuck, for taking the time today to speak to inspiring social entrepreneurs.
1: I'm glad to be here.
0: So you have had uh, you, you wear various hats. Um, you've worn various hats certainly. And uh, before coming to Living Goods, you were you worked in, in in different areas as an entrepreneur. Can you talk a little bit about maybe your background and how
1: you came to Living Goods? Um, yeah, I have. I guess a little bit of a uh, a winding path to uh, to the beginning of Living Goods. Um, uh, one of the interesting bits is that, so I'm, a, I'm really of a private sector entrepreneur. Um, I started a company called TravelSmith, uh, which is a travel gear and clothing business in 1991, uh, which I grew from scratch to over $100 million in sales, 2 million customers. And I had the, the, the good luck and good fortune to sell um, um, about 10 years ago. Um, but that wasn't my first business. I tried a couple of things before that, um, all, all of which were uh, uh, disasters. <laughs> and so, I think what, if one thing informs my work in anything I do, it's that you know that f- failure is part of success, and that uh, you have to try a lot of things before you find the thing that works. Right. That's interesting.
0: Um, so, um, the living goods—the uh, idea, um, in in one sense—I mean, people talk about it as an Avon model. Where where did you get the original idea? Can you talk a little bit about the idea and how it's uh, evolved, maybe since you first got it?
1: Yeah, so um, I had a, a, a after I sold my company, I had, I found myself having a beer with a good friend, um, who had also sold a company, and he was funding a project in East Africa, um, uh, that uh, was a nonprofit operating a chain of for-profit healthcare care providers, uh, clinics and drug shops. This was in Kenya. And uh, that idea caught my imagination, the notion of using a business model to solve a big social problem. That's really the, the thing that animates me, is using the tools of, of business to address the needs of the world. And um, this was in the early 2000s. And if you recall, this is about the same time that uh, Bill Gates was turning his attention to the challenges of public health. And here seemed a pretty compelling idea. And uh, I went over, well actually what happened originally was uh, my wife and I donated some money to this uh, nonprofit. Um, uh, my friend uh, Dan asked me to join the board, which I did, and then went over to see it. And, uh, and I was struck by two things. Yes, a powerful idea, but, but also it was being very, it had, I was having real challenges in execution. Um, and I reported this back to the board of directors, and they asked me if I would help them do a turnaround, uh, which I agreed to do for a period of about a year or so, year two years. And uh, here was a network of, of for-profit drug shops operating in rural areas in Kenya. And the observation we made was there was a lot of the day where these drug shops owners were just sitting around idly waiting for sick people to show up and we thought well that's that's slack time can we put it to better use and so we did an experiment we got them out of their shops and into the communities into the schools and knocking on doors and in short this proved to be um, the key element of the turnaround these stores went from losing money to making money Um, and then I'm like well, what if we took this to its logical extreme and got rid of this physical storefronts and made this just a door-to-door business? Um, and I'm like, well, hold the phone. Isn't there somebody who's figured out this business model? And of course, one's thoughts turn to companies like Amway and Tupperware and Avon. And here's a, a business model that's been around since the 19th century, Avon started in 1876. Um, it's $160 billion industry today. It's growing faster than the big consumer goods businesses. Um, very profitable. Um, and I thought, well, imagine if you could harness the power of that business model to sell not just discretionary products like lipstick, but things people really need, like treatments for malaria and diarrhea and, and healthy food. Um, and that was, that was the, uh, moment of inspiration, if you will. And, uh. Living Goods began as uh, trying to answer that question. Could you apl- adapt that model to providing high-quality health care to the poor?
0: Right. Well, we can talk a little bit more about that uh, ad- adoption of the model and, and how how you you know, developed it and, and made a success of it. But you touched on a very interesting question, uh, which comes up again and again in various different guises, which is about this question. I mean, social entrepreneurship at its heart is this idea really of using business to meet social uh, needs. Can you talk a little bit about why you think that, that you know, the benefit of doing that, and maybe in the context of what you saw, that, you know, how a non-business uh, orientation you know, uh, might not have helped you. And what is it about that business orientation? Do you think crucially that that allows it to work uh, to be more powerful,
1: and certainly in certain situations? Um, yeah. So first of all, I don't. I, you know, I come from a school of thought that that believes that there's not as much difference between the sectors as as we believe or pretend. That you know, whether you're a a company, a government, or a nonprofit. Your purpose is to serve your customer, Um, and uh, and if you really start with that as the premise and say, you know, what does my customer need, how can I bring some creativity to serving those needs um, to bring them better products and services at a lower cost, it's really the same question across the sectors. Um, I went to the Yale School of Management, um, and that was sort of the founding philosophy of the school, is that we're going to teach management without regard to sector. You know, marketing is marketing, <laughs> finance is finance, um, uh, and so that's, I think that's the mentality. If you focus, it's really about, as I said, it's about, uh, about focusing on the customer, and you know, I think, you know, if you're going to con- compare and contrast the sectors, I suppose what you find wanting sometimes in the business and nonprofit sectors is less discipline in doing those things really well, less focused on, on innovation less focus on performance management. Um, uh, and I think, you know, if there's a structural challenge, it's that the social sectors um, because of the absence of the absolute focus on the bottom line, um, it's more difficult to create a, um, a clear sense of accountability end to end. And that's been a big part of the journey at Living Goods is uh, how do you create great performance management and the same level of accountability that you find in the private sector, um, uh, in the social sector. Um, uh, uh, And one focus for us in that regard is, is really getting into what our end goal is, and having great research and evidence to support it. So from day one at Living Goods, we wanted a measure that was as clear and powerful to us and to our funders as profit is to an investor in a private business. And so, for that reason, we invested in doing a um, a randomized control study to measure the impact of living goods on its effect on saving children's lives. And that was that was for those of your listeners who know what a randomized study is. They're big, they're complicated, but they're the best way to prove impact in the social sector. Um, and I did that initially because I wanted to be sure for myself that what we were doing was having the impact that we intended. I didn't want to be wasting my time. Um, and it, that investment in evidence and research and focusing on, on really delivering for the customer um, and using the best uh, research to prove it um, has become a core principle for us. And I think uh, has helped bridge that gap, if you will. So we have something that gets closer to the clarity of the bottom line. Right.
0: This randomized study, what exactly does that look like? How difficult is it to do? And what about uh, smaller organizations that might not have the resources? Or what is the resource commitment? Or if you are in a uh, resource strained environment, what what do you suggest? I packed in a few questions there, (laughs) Charles.
1: Yeah, you know, it totally, it's obviously very contextual. So it depends on what you're trying to measure. We have to be trying to measure something that's very challenging, which is child mortality. So to, to measure that, you need very big, very big study. You know? So we, we surveyed 215 villages and took 8,000 household surveys to do this. Um, and the, the good news for us was the result was very powerful. We, we, we hoped to get a 10 to 12% reduction in child mortality. The result showed us that we were getting a 25% reduction in child deaths, a 7% reduction in stunting. Um, um, and uh, we helped show that we could drive counterfeit drugs out of the market. So it was very powerful. It was expensive. It cost us three-quarters of a million dollars. Um, But let me say this about organizations of any size, including those that have limited resources. It cost us three-quarters of a million, but the proof was so powerful that it has since drawn in 30 to 50 times that amount of resources subsequently. So it was an enormous, it had an enormous return on investment um, for the organization, not, not the least of which was proving for ourselves that, uh, that, the, that the model was working. Um, but RCTs aren't the only way to prove impact. And I would just encourage your you know, listeners to, to seek out the best sort of partners in research. And we happen to work with two great organizations. One is called Innovations for Poverty Action, which is a Yale spinoff another one called the Poverty Action Lab, which comes out of MIT. Um, and an um, organization like that can advise you on, you know, what's the most cost-efficient method to prove the impact that you're after. That's an amazing finding, Chuck. Um, hmm. And, and uh, as you say,
0: gives you really good uh, confidence that you're, you know, uh, heading in the right direction, that you're having an impact. How confident were you? Um, And what stage in the process were you, how long and were you on the journey before you felt uh, uh, confident enough or or just when when you actually did it? Because presumably, um, you know, you can do these impact studies, but if you're not very confident that you've got, you know, all your ducks lined up, uh, that can be a problem.
1: Um, Yeah. So it's interesting um, question. We were very confident we were having an impact. But we were not very confident that the study was going to show it. And that sounds that sounds a lot. But, you know, RCTs are hard to do. They're hard to design. The way you ask the questions, the way you do the randomization, all these things can affect whether it actually reveals an impact or not. Um, and without going into all the, the detail, you know, it was due to the complexity. And, you know, we're working in Uganda, in rural Uganda, and getting quality answers um, is a tricky thing to do. Um, one thing we did that helped was, this was a three and a half year study, was we, we took sort of a, a midpoint uh, dipstick study about a year into this. And that quickly showed us that there was some uh, problems with the study design. Um, and it also showed us operationally which por- por- portions of our thing seemed to be working better and which were not working as well. So um, that sort of, uh, sort of a quick, early quick look in the study without waiting the full three years allowed us to both improve the study design and make some operational changes, the result of which was the, you know, the great outcome we saw at the end. It's, it's, it's part of, I think it fits into our broader sort of um, philosophy of the organization, which is the most important thing we do is to try to learn fast. Um, and um, to make mistakes on small money and small investments of time rather than, you know, make grand investments over a long period only to find out years later that you were on the wrong track. Yes, yes. So
0: innovation, is that what you're talking about here? And I I know you talk about rapid experimentation. At what stage were you in the the business when you... Uh, really started to you know get get behind that and start to see some results. And and what are a couple of things you might have learned about making a success? Yeah.
1: Um, so this is really part one of our guiding principles. I, I you know I the TravelSmith, the company, I started as a direct marketing business, and it is direct marketing businesses are very data driven and very testing oriented. So we're always testing one thing against another, one headline against another, one list against another, one marketing idea against another, one you know, et cetera, and so um, that philosophy of trying a lot of things to see what works is just sec- is second nature to me, and became a sort of founding philosophy for Living Goods. And again, I think that's that's sometimes lacking in the social sector. Um, I'm, I, am i i my view is that you know um, the success of any organization, be it for profit or nonprofit, does not evolve, does not come out of you know pure strategy. You don't create the winning strategy on the whiteboard. You create the winning strategy by coming up with ideas that you think have potential and getting them in front of the customer as fast as possible. Um, uh, I like what, uh, I am admire the founder of Intuit. is a company that um, created QuickBooks. It's got 80% market share in, in, the, in the accounting software business. And he says he likes his product manager to be coming up with ideas that can be high value proposition to the customer. That he can put in front of the customer in two weeks, and learn from them and change, evolve his product from uh, from those kind of tests. So that's that's the kind of philosophy we try to lean into: is don't don't try to create a strategy from whole cloth. Come up with good ideas, test them as quickly as possible, and importantly, know when to walk away from something that isn't working. Uh, I think that's that's a problem I see in the social sector: is that people get very quickly get that get stuck on ideas. And find themselves doing the same way, same thing in the same way, um, um, even if it doesn't appear to be uh, uh,
0: effective. What have you found about rapid experimentation in that sense? What 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 are the obstacles to uh, stopping projects
1: or stopping uh, ideas that aren't working? It's really coming back to people. You know, the success of any enterprise is all about the people, um, and. Um, the challenge is, is, uh, creating a culture where failure is considered part of the path to, to, to winning. And so that people don't feel bad when they walk away from something. Um, and very publicly saying, we're going to stop doing, you know, we tried that, we're going to stop it. We tried that. We're going to stop doing that. And people seeing that that's part of how you do business. Um, so they're both encouraged to try things and they're not discouraged when something doesn't work. Um, and you have to you have to walk the talk. You have to actually reward people who do that. Um, you have to hold them up as examples. You got to pay them well. Um, uh, it's it's the intersection of the peop- that philosophy and how you manage people. Right.
0: You talk about this performance management. Can you talk a little bit about yeah. the journey that you went on in terms of you know maybe how some of the goals that you were articulating at uh, one stage when you really refined them when you started to think about them and you know this performance management focus how would they have changed i mean just generally what is the difference between you know uh fuzzy goals or and and, and the kind of goals you need to uh get the kind of performance that you're talking about
1: yeah so you know I, i'm a this will sound a little bit obvious but very very powerful believer in clear crisp measurable goals Um, for example when we do um, you know most companies do performance reviews at the end of the years at end of each year we don't call it a review we call it a performance plan and the focus of the plan is not so much the looking backward piece it's looking forward Um, and um, uh, setting very clear um, measurable targets um, for, for the year ahead, and in um, uh, I guess so. This is part of how we operated from the beginning. A big change came for us about two years ago when we decided to invest significantly in mobile technology to support our ability to track performance. Um, and, and even though I came from a business that was an online, you know, when I, by the time I sold it, TravelSmith was. Majority in online business. Um, technology had not been a centerpiece for living goods until a few years ago. Um, part of that was because the penetration of mobile phones um, um, and access to a signal was growing during the time that we started living, we building living goods. Um, uh, uh, so when we started the company, only about 30% of the population had a phone. About by three years ago, though, we realized that seventy to eighty percent of the people in Uganda had had a phone, and the signal was available almost everywhere in the country. So we took a big, we made a big bet, a big experiment to put smartphones in the hands of all, you know, four thousand of our uh, health entrepreneurs, um, and. Uh, In brief, this turned out to be a very, very powerful experiment. We did it quick and dirty in-house. We showed that it could work, and then we we rolled it out to the entire organization. And now um, this system allows us to – every agent collects every single interaction they have with a customer. Every time we treat a child, register a pregnancy, follow up with a sick kid, um, all that data is collected on uh, our smart health app. And anybody in the organization, the field managers, the regional managers, the country management, all the way up to my office in San Francisco, can see the performance of any one of those 4,000 agents in real time on any device. Um, And so that dramatically sped up the feedback of information about what was working and what wasn't and which agents were thriving and and which weren't. and so over those last two years, we've gone from an organization where technology, I think, was considered a bit of an accessory to one where it's really the backbone, the motherboard, if you will, of the organization. And that's been a challenging transition. Uh, uh, developing software and managing a large, complex tech- technology system was not a core competence for the organization. And that, that's a hard thing to, to do, is to take an organization and build a new core competency. Um we're two and a half years into this now, and now other organizations around the world are coming to us um, who want to replicate this uh, system. So we we now support three of the largest NGOs in the world are um, are replicating the Living Goods model, and all of them are interested in one form or another in adapting the uh, this mobile sort of performance management tool um, to their different contexts. That's a great
0: result. That's a great result. You've got four thousand agents. Can you talk a little bit about the agents and and uh, what kind of uh, background and how they find the experience and 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 what it's been like getting a, a, a putting together a network uh,
1: that you have. Yeah. So just a little background. What what do they do? So our agents. So this is this is again built on the Avon model. They're independent entrepreneurs. They're not paid staff. Um, they earn. Um, uh, a margin on the products that they sell, they also earn occasionally small sort of incentives that we give for specific uh, impact results we want, like registering a pregnancy. Um, um, so they are they're motivated, they're, they're, they're driven, they tend to be very, you know, we look for people who are gregarious, who are involved, who have strong sort of social networks. I often say that, uh, that uh, Avon was the original social network idea. You know, business that uses people's social networks as the means of marketing, if you will. Um, um, And by the way, figured out how to monetize it (laughs) quickly. Um, uh, And so they go door to door, uh, teaching people how to improve their health. And they make a living selling high impact, low cost health products like treatments for malaria, diarrhea, pneumonia, um, healthy fortified foods, clean, uh, clean birthing kits solar lighting, uh, high-efficiency cook stoves, these, these sorts of products. Um, and they work in poor communities in Uganda, in Kenya, with our partners in Zambia, in Myanmar. Um, these are families who live on, you know, uh, each person is living on $1 to $2 a day. Um, uh, and the key thing is that they are known and trusted um uh, people in their in their community. the customer knows that they can call this woman any time of day or night. Um, the living goods agent will come to their home. This is really a lot about convenience. They'll provide a treatment that 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 works that's reliable. Um, they know their kid's gonna get better. Um, and and so it's really a lot of this is about the trust between the agent and her um, uh, uh, and her customer. The thing, the beautiful thing that we see that, that really inspires me is that the women who thrive at this, and I think this is the, the, you know, what what's powerful about the social sector in general, the women who thrive at this are women who both, you know, are driven to to make a living, but who are also driven to make a difference. That's where the great success comes from, is that, you know, that sort of passion to, to, to build a great small business, but also to do it for a reason because they want to serve their, their friends, their family, um, and their community better. Those are our greatest agents, you know, combine those two uh, ideals. It's fantastic.
0: PopTech has been catalyzing social impact for two decades via its renowned fellows program, Incubated Initiatives, thought-provoking salons and conferences. The PopTech 2017 conference takes place October 19th to 21st, you can book tickets now and find out more information at poptech.org. And what would the alternatives be to the 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 people in the village who buy the these products to what extent um I mean you're selling these so presumably they they need to value this this is uh, scarce money um that they yeah. have is there an educational element and um you know how does that work?
1: Yeah. Um yeah so you know I always start with what's the value proposition to the customer that's by the way that's whether you're talking about your end customer or an investor or a funder or a partner you know what value you are bring to them and so the just to give you put in context the average treatment that we sell costs about 50 cents um, and the value proposition is powerful because of the door-to-door business model so you ask what's the alternative so for Probably for half to two-thirds of our customers, the alternative is spending you know, a half a day to a day walking to a public health center where, in theory, they can get a medicine for free. The government, Governments tend to offer these medicines for free, but um, this is going to cost them up to a dollar in transportation costs in each direction. So the 50-cent drug delivered to your door is actually cheaper than free. It's cheaper than the free medicine that would take you a half a day and $2 in transport costs to access from uh, uh, from a government center. And plus, you're going to get treated faster, which means you're, it's much less likely your kid is going to become uh, severely ill. And, you know, and you're avoiding, you know, missed labor and, and losing, you know, potentially productive income. So the, even though, you know, Again, the the government uh, often offers these services for free. This sort of for-profit model is offering a better uh, value proposition to the end customer.
0: Right. And is education required?
1: Um, yeah. So, you know, this is why I always think this is funny, this quote unquote question about education. Um, of course that's true of any product. You know, I, I, people often get hung up on language in the business sector. You call it marketing. In the social sector, they call education or behavior change. You know, every great company is trying to change the behavior of the, their target customer to buy their product. <laughs> it's a matter of how good you are at it. Um, and um, and so, yes, every great doordale salesperson is an educator, is a teacher, is a salesperson, is a convincer, <laughs> a handholder. Um, uh, and... Um, Uh, And we work in a hard space. I mean, getting people to change their behavior about what they eat, what medicines they take, that's hard to do, which is why this business model is so well-suited because, you know, as I said, the Avon model is all about the trust between the seller and the buyer and the fact that the model is built on on educating and selling to people who know you already and who trust you already. That's the power of this uh, model. And by the way, look at the rise of social media. It's built on the same, you know, idea of of leveraging the power of human connections, um, and so we're all we're all feeding off the same power source, if you will.
0: Yes, I I, I I've had limited experience, but in, in there has been some network marketing you come across in uh, the UK, and th- yeah. there is a resistance to people feeling that their social relationships are monetized or they're getting contacted by people who are you know, friends, but, you know, organize them to come around and they feel under pressure to buy things. Um, it's a different scenario, presumably, because these are health products that are, you know, uh, necessary. In, uh but are, are there any socio-cultural issues like that?
1: Um, so, yeah, I, I mean, yeah, I think you hit the nail on the head. This is, you know, you know, um, the 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 mother who's calling our agent is the mother of a child who's has a high fever and sick with malaria or who's in, who's pregnant and has, is experiencing some distressing sign in her pregnancy. So she desperately needs someone who can come to her quickly and who she trusts. So we don't have, we have very, very little resistance. One thing you occasionally see is so is we're part of the big problem we're solving for is increasing the number of trained professionals in the health sector. So, you know, 80% of the people who we train have no prior health experience. And so in the beginning, you know, actually a a challenge you have is that, you know, this is a neighbor, you know, a living goods agent before may have had a business, you know, raising chickens or tailoring. And so in the beginning, they sometimes have resistance from their, from their neighbor saying, geez, you were tailoring (laughs) yesterday and you're a nurse today. You know, I'm not sure if I'm going to trust you. Um, but that trust, get, turns out, gets built up very quickly, particularly the first time you go to treat a child and that child gets better, that, hap- that happens very quickly. And I, we can, I could share dozens of stories with you. Um, and the, the technology helps, by the way, interestingly, we found that putting the smartphone in the hands of this woman um, increases her credibility yeah. with her neighbors. Yeah. You know, she, gets a, you know, she gets training, she gets a certificate, she get this smartphone. The smartphone, by the way, has a automated diagnosis tool in it. So we built a, a an algorithm based app that helps ensure that the agent gets the diagnosis, asks the right questions in the right order to get the right diagnosis every time. Yes. Well, I was going to ask so, about
0: that. Is is there a question? Uh, uh, well, what your best selling products are, but also is there a question about because uh, health needs are limitless, I suppose. And you know, yeah. You, you, how do you? uh know where to to stop or you know uh, h- how do you define the area that you're going to you know be able to help with?
1: It's really interesting so we we so one is there's clearly a boundary there's you know we the, um, uh, but the, uh, so we we really train the agents to know what they are permitted and trained to do and what they're not And so there's a very robust system of referral when when they diagnose the child, at the end of the app, at the end of the diagnosis process, the app will give a message saying whether this is a child should be referred to a physician, to a health center. Um, and then when they, when you get to the end of that questionnaire, we see the result through this mobile system. Um, and so we know that that child should be referred and we know to follow up with the agent to make sure the child got seen by a professional. Um, so knowing where that bright line is, is, is very important. But here's an interesting thing, which is that to fill this enormous gap in health professionals. The technology is really a game changer. And what we've been, with the help of the technology, by providing more accurate diagnosis and better trackability, greater transparency, we've been able to persuade the regulators in these countries to to authorize these community-based agents to do more and more complex, sophisticated tasks. You know, like uh, prescribing an antibiotic or doing a blood test in the field. Those are things we couldn't do five years ago, but we've won permission from the governments in East Africa to do them because we're providing putting better technology in the hands of the agent and because we have better visibility on every result. Um, and uh, so that was, a, that was a bit of an unforeseen benefit of, uh, uh, of uh, uh, investing in the technology. It's a great result uh, because you see that people
0: talking about that more here in Western health as well. I I don't know what they call it, de-skilling or what, but certainly like nurses doing more sophisticated other work that they mightn't have done before, which allows, you know, doctors to focus on other kinds of issues and things. Um, can you tell me what's the scale of your activity at the moment, Chuck? And, And broadly
1: speaking, how did it, you know, evolve? So, um, uh, as of the end of 2016, we are serving five million people, across, from principally across Uganda and Kenya. And to put that in context, that's as many people as live in Ireland or Norway or Liberia. It's, it's virtually, we're providing healthcare for a small country. Um, uh, we grew f- uh, gradually up till about three years ago. Uh, three years ago, we were serving about a million people. In the last two and a half years, we've gone under a very rapid expansion which was triggered by the success of that study. Um, So um, it was, you know, having that clear, independent, um, high-quality proof unlocked a wave of interest from funders, from talent, from partners in government. Um, I I can't overemphasize how powerful and transformational um, that research has been for us, so much so that actually we're investing in a second RCT, a randomized study study. right now. So we're on a rapid growth path. Our goal now um, is to reach 50 million people. Uh, We want to get to national scale. We want to become the national system in Uganda and Kenya, each of which are countries of 30 to 40 million people. And we want to replicate it um, in at least three more countries. So this is, we're talking about potentially, you know, we're providing healthcare to over 50 million people, primary healthcare. Um, uh, And, uh, the powerful thing that's happening right now, you know, part of the journey is 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 how this thing is getting financed. In the beginning, and up up till fairly recently, um, this was financed in an unusual way. So, unlike most nonprofits, we I come from the business background. I really wanted to fund this like a business, um, and so the majority of the financing for the goods up to this point has come from fellow successful entrepreneurs um, who share you know, the vision for using business principles to solve uh, challenging uh, needs in, in healthcare. Um, so These are people like Pierre Omidyar, the founder of eBay, um, Bill Draper, one of the famous founding icons in venture capital, uh, Chris Hahn, one of the most successful um, um, hedge fund managers in, in, uh, in Europe. Um, Uh, and and people of this nature. Uh, uh, And so that has provided us this sort of very smart, flexible, large-scale funding to get to to the place that we are. But now to take this to to the next level, to bring it to a scale of countries and and regions, we need to really also begin partnering much more deeply with the local governments and with the biggest funders in healthcare, which of course are not just the local governments, but the big uh, um, uh, donor countries like... You know, U.S., U.K., um, global institutions like the World Bank, the Global Fund, et cetera. And so going forward, our vision is to bring the same level of creativity and ingenuity to financing as we have to delivery. And so you know, you've heard me say that Living Goods really is a performance-based uh, organization, performance-based culture. Everybody, so the agents are paid for results, and everybody inside the organization is paid for performance. So that's sort of a core, core philosophy. Get paid for your for your results. And now we're going to take that to the organizational level. Um, and so we're designing a pay-for-results mechanism as a way for funders to invest in this platform overall. Um, and so we're seeking to raise $100 million now um, from a combination of, of high-net-worth individuals and Governments and large institutions, and the notion is, you only will uh, pay living goods once we prove we've delivered the uh, uh, the outputs that were um, uh, that we proved over the, uh, over the last uh, ten years. So at the end of a quarter or a year, we'll report out via this mobile system how many pregnant women we served, how many child children we treated, and based on those uh, metrics, we'll get uh, uh, we'll get paid by the funders. So getting paid after the fact for results, not before the fact for, uh, uh, to finance inputs, if you will. Um, uh, we think this would be a revolutionary way to, to fund a nonprofit, um and a way to, um, uh, to, to basically to dramatically lower the risk for the funders. So it's, it virtually eliminates the executional risk for the funder. Um, and we think that will be a means to attract a lot more um, uh, money to the
0: idea. Wow, that's a big idea transformational idea. Can you give me some idea of the kind of investment that you needed to get the business to this stage? How long did it take before it was making a profit?
1: Well, so, um, uh, good question. So we, I, um, uh, let me share a couple of thoughts here. One is I'm a very big believer on, on testing on the cheap. And so, um, uh, in general, we try to, you know, the, our, our mandate to our team is think of ideas that have good potential for enormous impact or improvement in our sustainability, but that you can test relatively quickly and cheaply. So that's sort of the philosophy. To get to the stage that we had the proof from the RCT took, I'm um, trying to think now, so that uh, we started in about 2008 and the RCT results came out two So that, you know, the whole, that whole process actually took six or seven years and the entire investment up to that point. I'm going to ballpark, uh, cumulatively, was probably about um, 10, between 10 and $15 million. We've since raised two or three times that, um, uh, um, that amount. Um, uh, and just to clarify, this is a nonprofit that uses a business model. The, non, the organization overall doesn't turn a, doesn't turn a profit. The, the agents make a profit. We recover 100% of the cost of the product. Um, which just in those two levels solves two gigantic problems in, in public health, which is how do you pay health workers and how do you finance the medicines? Um, additionally, the system throws off contribution um, a margin that pays a fair amount of the distribution cost, but not all of it. But this is an insane value proposition. So if you're a government, if you are a USAID or a high net worth funder, um, this Model provides the impact that I described at a net cost of just two dollars per person per year. So, uh, you know, in the U.S., we spend about eight thousand dollars a year per person on healthcare. The top five European countries spend about four or five thousand dollars a year, and so we're talking about a two dollar a year per investment that takes an enormous bite out of mortality for the highest risk populations in some of the poorest places. It's an insane value proposition in healthcare, in fact. We think we can take it from $2 down to $1 um, as we um, as we grow and scale. That's, that's an extraordinary result. Um,
0: before I talk briefly about scaling, I'm mindful of the time. I just wanted to um, ask you, what did I want to ask you? <laughs> I want, yes, sorry, uh, I need to note these kind of things. Yes, did you, why did you choose to be a non-profit? Was there a moment when you thought about being a profit or what, was it a black, very clear decision?
1: Um, so, you know, um, this, this is a bit, this is an interesting question about what form of organization, nonprofit, for profit, and, you know, for your listeners, of course, there's no one right answer. It's, it's entirely depends on the context. Um, and my own view is that in, that most of the sectors you can have, you know, a combination of, of impact and financial success. Um, uh, functioning as, uh, you know, as a legal entity that's either a for-profit or a non-profit. Um, uh, let me make an interesting sort of semantic point about healthcare, which is that, uh, to a certain degree, I don't think it matters. It, you know, In the United States, there are no large healthcare companies that wouldn't exist without some form of government payment, you know, and, this, and this is true the most, in most economies. Is that whether you're a pharmaceutical company, a, a hospital chain, a diagnostics company, you know you wouldn't exist if it weren't for Medicaid and Medicare or the National Institutes of Health investing in, um, uh, investing or or paying um, the uh, cost for many of your benefit many of your customers, um, and this, and it's no tr- different in the place we work if if not more so we're trying to serve a much much poorer customer, and we don't have you know these countries don't have Medicare Medicaid and NIH. They have USAID and the World Bank, um, and so uh, Living Goods. Put it another way, I think it could easily be either a nonprofit or a for-profit. Um, uh, the mechanism I described to you before of this pay-for-results mechanism could come in the form of grant payments, or it could come in the form of contract payments. Um, and the difference is, is again, in my view, is fairly uh, uh, a linguistic one, <laughs> rather really than a terribly practical one. Um, I think if we look cast forward over the next decade, I think it's likely that living goods, the iterations of living goods in different places, whether they're run by us or run by partners, could be set up either as for profits, um, as as non profits, as for profits, or as you know government, uh, you know uh, government initiatives, if you will. I wouldn't. Get, my point is, I wouldn't get too hung up on the
0: legal question. Right. Does it? Does it make a difference internally? I mean, I've, I've spoken to uh, social entrepreneurs that came from a charity background, turned their charities into you know, for-profits and they had real challenges on this journey, how they yeah. talked about profits, how they thought about uh, and motivated uh, employees. In in your organization, since you're a non-profit, but yet you talk about these very clear uh, guidelines and uh, targets and goals and things, is, is that something you've had to think about?
1: Um, you know, so, you know, f- you made an interesting distinction if, you know, for us, it hasn't been an issue because we, we were purpose built to run this way. So most of the people we hire, for example, this, as I said, it's all coming back to people. We hire primarily from the private sector, not from the social sector. Um, and most of the agents are women who run their own small businesses. Um, so we haven't had to, you know, work too hard to change people's mentality about yes. thinking and working like a business. Yes. Now, if you're an existing nonprofit and you're trying to transform into a social enterprise, that's a much harder thing to do. Yes. Um, it's nearly impossible. You, I, my advice generally um, uh, is to you have. If you want to do that, you really have to set up a separate entity and hire new people for it with with a you know with a separate uh, governance. And, uh, and, new, and start building management from scratch. Some people can make the conversion, um, but you're, you're pulling against the tide of institutional norms that can be decades old. Absolutely.
0: And, and finally, then maybe just about scaling, because on the face of it, it's a pretty labor-intensive operation. I, mean, I know you talked about these major technological initiatives, but you're building a network of people. Um, how, how, how big an issue has it been how have you thought about scaling, and presumably that's changing uh, looking forward, but um, talk a little bit about your philosophy of scaling
1: <laughs> yeah, so that, you know there's there's this question that always gets asked in the social sector, geez, there's so many successful ideas that are proven to have results but that fail to scale, you know sometimes called pilotitis um, that's it's always been kind of a head scratcher to me. something that really works should be able to scale. I think where organizations. Fail is on two levels. One is in, in designing their, their systems and hiring, designing their performance management systems and, and hiring with a view to, to scale. So what, what do I mean by that? One is, one philosophy I've had from the beginning is always hire the best possible people. Hire a, a bigger person than you think you need today because for sure you're going to need them tomorrow. So the person who you hire just to serve the needs of the organization today, that person is not going to be able to grow your organization. So, you know, if I think I need a a manager, I hire a director. If I think I need a director, I'm going to hire a vice president um, so that your people can scale with you as you grow your your entity. We also make a big point in living good. This sounds like a small thing, but makes a big difference in scaling is we hire six to nine months ahead of the need. So we, you know, we've tripled in scale in the last two and a half years. The only way we've been able to do that is hiring the people we need to run new branches and locations six to nine months ahead of time and giving them, you know, at least six months to train on the job before they take charge of a new uh, territory or region. If you look at great, you know, retailers, I come from the retail world, you know, they they have two entirely separate operations, you know, one that runs the day-to-day operations, the other one that's focused on growth. Um, and again, many nonprofits don't, uh, uh, don't think that way. So, hiring ahead of the curve is big. And then, as I, I've said a couple of times, um, uh, the mobile and digital tools have been um, transformational. So, you know, it's much easier to manage a, a workforce of five to 10,000 people if you've got these mobile tools that give you visibility in real time. If you're relying just on paper, that's uh, nearly impossible. So, nonprofits working you know, even in difficult places like East Africa, you know, the technology can be, you know, provide a tremendous amount of lubrication when it comes to scaling faster with, uh, uh with less risk. Right. Very interesting. Chuck, that's been a, a,
0: a action-packed podcast that's been fascinating a uh, lots of, uh, uh, really good insights and useful information for other social entrepreneurs and, uh, really powerful vision and, and, uh, great work that you've done. So. Thank you so much for your time today, Chuck, and I wish you the very best of success in the future.
1: Virgil, thank you so much. It's been a pleasure.
0: Thank you for listening to the Inspiring Social Entrepreneur podcast. I hope you found this interview inspiring. Please make sure to visit www.inspiringsocialentrepreneurs.com and subscribe to make sure you don't miss any future podcasts.